0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television. So it's a pleasure to welcome Katie Pollard uh, from UC San Francisco to the podium. Her topic is Human Accelerated Regions in the Genome. Great. So thanks, Elaine um, and Ajit for the invitation. It's great to be here really exciting first part of the session. And I, if I understand right, my job is to move us from the genomes view into the gene view. And I'm certainly going to start with genomes and, and hopefully uh, provide a little bit of a transition into a more focused look at specific uh, genes and parts of the genome that have played roles in human evolution. So this question we're thinking about today, about what makes us human, um, isn't a new one. Humans have been comparing ourselves to other animals, especially our closest living relatives for eons, most likely. And many of us in this room belong to disciplines um, that arose out of this intellectual curiosity. In anthropology, for example, approaches focus on fossils, archaeology, behavior, and biology of living primates, um, including ourselves. But the researchers in the symposium today are actually in a relatively new field compared to these approaches. We address similar questions, but we're using DNA sequence data, as we've heard already in this session, first session today. And the way that my lab specifically explores the genetic basis for humanists is that we want to try to pinpoint the parts of the human genome that are most different, our DNA that's most different, between humans and chimps or other primates, and then to try to link these to human-specific biology. So this is a question you're hearing coming up over and over again in the talks today. So as we've heard, many of our traits are shared. Humans really are just great apes, um, and, but there are some ways that um, we're different. And These span all aspects of our biology, from disease susceptibility, which I'm particularly interested in, to behavior and diet. I was part of the international consortium that performed the initial sequencing and analysis of the chimpanzee genome, and this seems like a long time ago now, back in 2005. Um, we now have genomes of many other um, vertebrates, and including a number of primates, and as we've heard today, very excitingly, some, even some extinct primates. Neanderthals, as we heard, um, the Denisovans, are our closest relatives, as far as we know, that have ever lived. Um, chimpanzees have the role of being our closest living relative um, that hasn't gone extinct. And this is important for a couple reasons. One is that we can get high-quality DNA samples. We don't have to worry about these issues of contamination. Um, and of DNA degradation, but really much more importantly than that is that we can observe chimpanzees, living chimpanzees today. So we can, in trying to make the link from the genome to the traits that we're interested in, we actually have something we can observe. We can observe the soft tissues. We can observe things like behavior. Um, and so both um, these extinct hominids that are very closely related to us and our closest living relative, the chimp, play very important roles in asking what makes us human from a genetic perspective, and they're very complementary. So interestingly, um, getting back to the chimp genome project, consistent with the fact that most of our biology really isn't that different from a chimp or a gorilla or orangutan, as I'm sure many of you have heard, our DNA sequence is not that different. So we differ about one in every hundred base pairs, one in every hundred letters in our genome from the chimp genome. And if we focus on the parts of our genome, and this is only about 2%, a little less than 2% of our genome, the parts that encode proteins, the, there are even fewer differences than that. So our proteins, it turns out, are nearly identical. And there are some proteins that are very different, and there's some pretty exciting stories about those that we're going to hear about the rest of this afternoon. But what came to me from looking at the chimpanzee genome and from understanding the findings of the Chimpanzee Genome Project was that we need to look beyond the proteins if we want to understand the genetic basis for humanness. The story isn't going to only be there. So uh, the other thing that we've um, heard about from Evan and a little bit from Elaine today is that there are these structural variations, parts of our genome where we have a sequence and Chimp doesn't have it at all, or we have multiple copies with slight variations in them and Chimp has only one or two copies. Um, And some of these are unique to us and some are unique to chimpanzees since our common ancestor it turns out that on a base pair by base pair level, these actually make up more of the difference between a human and chimp. So if you've heard that figure cited that were 99% identical to a chimpanzee, those are single letters of DNA where you're looking at the corresponding letter between human and chimp, you're sure you're looking at the same place in the genome, and there's been a change. And it's important to remember that these structural variations, although not as talked about as much, um, not as well understood, not as easily mathematically modeled, um, also actually play a, a, a very important role as well. So I'm going Going to touch on both of those a little bit today. Focus a little bit more on substitutions because we have nice mathematical and probabilistic models for understanding them. But I think these structural variations are exceedingly important and um, are increasingly coming to light. So both of types of differences between humans and chimps, or humans and other non-human um, primates are important. And as I mentioned, they affect both the protein coding sequences in our genome and the non-coding parts of our genome. And in fact, most of the chimp-human differences aren't in proteins. They're going to be in these parts of the genome that used to be called junk DNA. And it turns out that some of it is junk um, in the sense that it's not doing a lot to help us and our biology along, but much of it is doing important things. And so slowly, um, science is starting to understand this non-coding or dark matter part of our genome that used to be called junk. Um, and one of the important things that the non-coding genome does is to uh, control uh, expression of nearby genes. So there are things called regulatory elements, and they can turn nearby genes on and off. You can think of the genes like the building blocks or the bricks, and then these are the ways that you can put them together. So chimps and humans have basically the same building blocks with some interesting exceptions. But what we're interested in pursuing is the idea that, that you can put them together in different ways. So um, this is exciting. Um, it's a new area to focus on, since much of science has focused on proteins in the past. Um, but it's also very challenging, because compared to proteins, where we know a lot about their structure and their function through years and years of biochemistry and biology, structural biology, very little is known about the non-coding genome. Um, but luckily, uh, we can let evolution help us with this problem? And the reason is that if a sequence is doing something in the genome, it's doing something important for your biology or a chimp's biology, then it is uh, disadvantageous to change that sequence. You might alter the function, and in extreme cases lead to a disease um, or some other condition that's not as favorable. So It's best not to tinker around with things if they're working. And following that sort of paradigm, what we can do now um, in, in in 2011 is to take all these vertebrate genomes, there's about 50 that have been sequenced today, and the more distantly related ones, things like a mouse or a chicken or a fish are exceedingly helpful for understanding these regulatory sequences, this non-protein part of the genome. And that's because if a piece of DNA that's a candidate junk DNA, it's just out there, we're not sure what it's doing, um, is actually playing an important role, like turning on a nearby gene during development that helps you Um, start to make cardiac myocytes, then it would be a bad idea, evolutionarily speaking, to tinker around with that sequence. And therefore, what happens is that the human version, if we compare it to mouse, chicken, or fish, is actually not that different. It's much more similar than you would expect by chance, given the hundreds of millions of years of evolution that separate these species And so what we find in comparing uh, more distantly related vertebrates back to humans is that at least 5%, probably more like 10%, maybe even more than that, of our genome is very slow evolving. It's what we call under negative selection or functional constraint. And since we know that less than 2% of the genome is protein coding, that means that most of what's important in our genome actually isn't the proteins. It's these regulatory or non-coding sequences. Now... This is exceedingly important, and one of the most important things that's come out of comparative genomics and sequencing different um, genomes is that by looking at these species that are more distantly related, we can actually shed light on and functionally annotate parts of our genome and understand which ones are more important than others in terms of our biology and our health. Then, if we look to a close relative, like the Neanderthal or the chimpanzee, where most of the genome isn't different, most of it's the same, the story's the opposite. We want to look for the parts that are different. So there, the genome is nearly identical, and what's interesting are the places where there's structural variations or substitutions at single DNA bases and By linking these two pieces of information together, we can figure out which of these differences are falling in these elements that are important for gene regulation and therefore for development and normal functioning and health so um, to look at this at the level of DNA sequence data, I just want to show some quick examples. These are DNA sequence alignments. There's one row for each species. It's human, chimp, mouse, and rat in this example. But as I mentioned, we can line up about 50 vertebrate species now. A column represents a place in the genome where we assume that uh, those DNA bases all descended from a common position in the, com- in the ancestor of these four species. And we can look across this alignment and look for differences. So if we compare human and chimp, this is about 40 base pairs long. There's one difference. And since I told you there was one in every 100 base pairs across the genome, this is about what you would expect by chance. You'd expect zero or maybe one in a sequence of this length. Well, it turns out this is just a random place in the genome that I grabbed intentionally. It probably is junk DNA. And therefore, this represents um, what would be happening if there wasn't any functional constraint. This is the background, or what we call a neutral rate of evolution. Interestingly, if you compare mouse and rat, there's four differences. That might come as a surprise to some of you, but it's actually what we would expect, because there's more evolutionary time back to the common ancestor of mouse and rat than there is between human and chimp and our common ancestor. And so the idea there is that if a piece of DNA isn't doing anything important, that it randomly accumulates mutations and that those happen at a fairly constant rate over evolutionary time, over millions of years. And so the amount of sequence difference tells you something about how long ago two sequences had a common ancestor. And Ed talked a little bit about that today in talking about coalescent times between humans and Neanderthals. So the prevalent pattern that we see looking across this alignment is that the two primates are similar to each other, and they're different from the two rodents. And that's because there's actually quite a lot of time back to the common ancestor of all four species. So here's another example. Um, I didn't pick this sequence randomly. I picked it very intentionally. It's about the same length, a little bit shorter, and there's no differences at all between the four species. And this suggests that there has been functional constraint. Because if you think about a model for DNA sequence evolution that expects things to look like this, then the probability of seeing a sequence like this is actually very close to zero. It's very unlikely that you would get that little change. Maybe not between the human and the chimp. It's actually not that weird to see no difference. And maybe not between the mouse and the rat. But you'd certainly expect the primates to look different from the rodents. And then other forces can actually increase the rate of substitution. So if there's what we call positive or Darwinian selection operating, it's actually advantageous to change the sequence faster than it would under the neutral or background model. And you can also have mutational and other processes that increase rates. So what my lab does is build statistical probabilistic models for how DNA evolves using these principles I just described. And then we use those to search through vertebrate genomes for parts of the genome that are doing unusual or interesting things. So the pattern that I want to emphasize today is looking for something called a human accelerated region. And Ed already introduced this concept. The idea is that the sequence is evolving differently in one part of the phylogenetic tree or in one set of species compared to the others. And in particular, we want human to be different and everybody else to be the same. So here's an example of a sequence where chimp is identical to mouse and the rat genome, but there are six positions where human is different from chimp, which I mark with the little green arrows there. And um, This is highly unlikely to occur. We expect human and chimp to be similar to each other, and we expect chimp to be kind of different from the mouse and the rat. So There's two important things about this sequence. One is that the chimp is more similar to the mouse and the rat than you would expect. That tells me this sequence is probably doing something important. And secondly, human is different from chimp. I wouldn't expect that. That suggests that either that function's been lost or altered in some way, potentially, in the human genome. So we use those two concepts, things that are highly similar across the mammals but different between human and chimp. We take these mathematical models that I described. We perform a statistical test called a likelihood ratio test. We have to be very careful about how we implement this on computers. These calculations are very intensive, and the genome is huge. So if I were to perform this analysis on a desktop or a laptop computer, it would take about 35 years. But using a computer cluster at UCSF, which we have, which has about 1,000 computer nodes stacked up and running in parallel, we can actually do that analysis in an afternoon. So a lot of what you're hearing today um, from me and from other people is only enabled by these new advances in DNA sequencing technology, but also in computing. Computing plays a huge role in enabing, enabling these analyses. So what have we found? In 2006, we published about 200 of these human-accelerated regions. We call them HARs for an abbreviation. Now, using 50 vertebrate genomes and some improvements in techniques, we've almost tripled that number of elements. And these tend to be fairly short, about 140 base pairs on average um, in length. And as I alluded to earlier in the talk, and and we might have expected from our uh, 1,000-foot view of the human and the chimp genomes, they're mostly not in proteins. A large percentage are intergenic, meaning they're lying out in between genes, and if they're in a gene region, they're in those intron sequences that aren't the coding parts um, or the UTR. So um, this is exciting. We're pursuing the hypothesis that many of these probably are regulatory elements that control expression of a nearby gene. Um, so to get a handle on what role they might have played in human evolution, it's interesting to see what those genes that, that have a HAR nearby are doing. Excitingly, many of the genes that are, have a HAR nearby are themselves transcription factors. Now, transcription factors are proteins that go and turn on and off other genes. And so that's really interesting because you could change a few base pairs in the human genome... You could change a sequence that alters the expression of a transcription factor. you could make more or less of the transcription factor in a particular cell type at a particular time during development, then that transcription factor goes and turns on and off a whole bunch of other genes. You could imagine having a, a pretty major um, impact on an actual trait, like something like the size of a brain or, or um, how many chambers you have in your heart um, or uh, how well you can metabolize starch so there 's a, a a lot of things that have to happen to go from a genome sequence to a trait or something that we can really latch onto and say, yes, that's different in a set of species or a species that I'm interested in, like human. Um, but transcription factors are a powerful way to make a big change like that. So this is exciting that many transcription factors have HARs. In fact, many of the genes, transcription factor or otherwise, um, are expressed during development, which means that they can play roles in things like how much hair you have, or how long your bones are, uh, the shapes and uh, complexity of your different tissues. And many of the genes with a HAR nearby are disease genes, more than half of them, showing that they're really important genes um, and that when you do make changes in them that they do have impacts on um, biology and health. And uh, I don't have time to go into it in great detail, but um, we've already heard today how important segmental duplications are in in terms of duplicating genes and deleting genes in a genome. And it turns out genes that are involved in these rearrangements, these structural variations, also are enriched for these human accelerated regions. I want to show you a few examples of specific genes where um, we're just starting to think about the biology that might have followed from. Uh, having a human-accelerated region nearby. And I hand-picked these because they are um, genes that we know play roles in, in, thi- in processes, developmental or otherwise, that are different between humans and chimps. And so first uh, example is the FOXP2 gene. It's sometimes called a speech gene because when you have a a loss in function of the FOXP2 gene in humans, the human can do all the normal cognitive function of language, can perform sign language in the same way that a chimpanzee can, but can't um, vocalize. And uh, FOXP2 is involved in modulating neural circuits and also controlling fine muscle movements, which are very important in, in the face, especially in terms of being able to do spoken language. The sonic hedgehog gene, several of the HOX genes, and several of the fibroblast growth factors all have HARs, human-accelerated regions, nearby. These genes all play really crucial roles in the basic patterning and layout of the embryo in a variety of different parts from the brain to the limbs um, to basic cell proliferation. Another exciting example is chorionic gonadotropin, This is the gene that comes on early in pregnancy. It's essential for normal implantation and maintenance of a pregnancy. And uh, it's interesting that this gene um, came up as having a human accelerated region nearby um, because it's already been demonstrated that the protein coding sequence has changed between humans and non-human primates. And it also looks as though the gene expression has changed in some specific ways. And so we may be getting close to figuring out what actual genetic changes are responsible for those gene expression changes. Um, This is really important because humans actually have a very hard time uh, initiating and maintaining pregnancies. This is one of our traits that's maybe not been improved during human evolution. Or maybe it was necessary for things like our bipedalism and our larger brains to have a different type of pregnancy. But if you compare a human to a macaque, for example, We actually have a very high rate of miscarriage and of um, failed implantation. And so this is another interesting example. Another sort of tantalizing one is a cluster of three genes that are involved in sexual dimorphism and also harbor a human-accelerated region. That's exciting because at least compared to um, gorillas, humans have much less sexual dimorphism. Another example I want to share with you is what we call HAR1, Human Accelerated Region 1. It's numbered one because it was the fastest evolving sequence that I found in this computational scan of the genome. It's about 118 base pairs long, and there's 18 differences between the human and the chimp genome. So that's off scale in terms of how fast evolving it is. Um, We would expect about one under that background or neutral model that I told you about. So it's an order of magnitude uh, faster than expected. Um, So HAR1 is a gene, um, meaning that its DNA is made into RNA, but it does not encode a protein. Instead, um, as we heard in the introductory remarks earlier, RNA can actually function on its own. It folds onto itself, forming a structural molecule shown here on the left. And interestingly, this RNA gene is expressed in in a very important type of neuron called a Cahel-Retzius neuron, in the developing neocortex. So here's the cortical plate, and this is something called the sub granular layer. And these cells that express uh, Har-1 also express, as shown down here in the lower right, a protein called relin, which is absolutely essential for the proper formation of the six-layer structure that becomes our cortex. Um, so... Um, this is exciting. Um, it's tantalizing. We don't know yet exactly what HAR1 does, but the Hausler and von der Huggen and several other labs are trying to figure out its role in human brain development. So as I alluded to, many of the human accelerated regions um, look like they're regulatory sequences, and one of the big jo- um, jobs in my lab right now is to try to figure out which ones are and what genes they're regulating. This is the underlying model. You have a gene that's off. You have a sequence nearby, which we call an enhancer, that can turn a gene on if a transcription factor comes and binds to it, and that leads to production eventually of the protein from that gene. So here's an example of one, par 152 We've shown through a bunch of bioinformatic analyses that HAR-152 harbors a binding site for a transcription factor called pax 6 and it's able to regulate the expression of a gene called Neurogenin2, which is important for the development of the neural tube in the central nervous system. And through experiments of a type we're going to hear even more about in the next talk um, from Jim Noonan, and we've heard a little bit about already, you can make a, take a gene that glows blue in a mouse embryo, and you can stick the human or the chimp enhancer in front of that gene, and you can see where the enhancer functions during development. And what we've done is um, that exact experiment and confirmed, first of all, that har 52 is an enhancer and that there are differences between the human and chimp expression patterns. So we're slowly starting to build up a story linking genome to an actual trait or phenotype, hopefully. There are a number of others that we validated already. We're going to hear, I think, in the next talk about HAR2, which is a limb enhancer. It's also known as Human Accelerated Non-Coding Sequence 1. And my lab's working on HAR34, which is a four-brain expressed uh, enhancer. So what have we learned from looking at human accelerated regions? I want to emphasize that it's not all about the brain. In this Scientific American article that I wrote in 2009, I talk about some interesting sequences that are involved in other parts of our uh, biology, such as uh, our diet and nutrition emphasize again, our proteins are nearly identical to chimps, so to understand what makes us human, I think we really need to focus on the non-coding part of the genome and trying to understand better how gene regulation works. This is a very important and massive field of biology that's um, really helping our research to move forward. And finally... A human and a chimp differ at one in every 100 base pairs, but we all differ at one in about every 1,000 base pairs. So in the same way that the Neanderthal isn't that different from the human, we're not that different from each other, really, either. And so uh, with this new technology everyone's been talking about, we're actually able and will in coming years have hundreds and thousands of human genomes to compare. And these exact same methods will be useful for understanding what parts of certain kinds of people's genomes are different from others, understanding Traits that make different people in different parts of the world different from each other, and most importantly, understanding why people at risk for different diseases um, have different elements in them. And I think the, the uh, paradigm of focusing on the non coding genome will be very useful there, too. We'll find out the genes pretty quickly, and then we're going to have to start this hard work of understanding the regulatory elements. So, thanks very much.